terrible thing happened while I started preparing Fifty Shades of Gender. I wanted, at the beginning of that message, to make a quick response. Some of you may know uh, Tony Campolo has uh, come out with sort of a letter, an open letter to the church, um, stating his full acceptance of same-sex relationships and encouraging the church everywhere to do the same. I have talked before about Tony Campolo and spoke on it on a Sunday night. And so I thought, you know what, I should just touch on that before getting into the gender thing. And I went through a fairly lengthy message and I didn't finish Tony Campolo's letter and my response to it. So I will, I promise, we will do Fifty Shades of Gender. I just felt like it was timely. It was timely with this week. This week launches um, what used to be called Gay Pride, now Pride Week in Toronto. The big parade is next Sunday. By the way, you know what this Sunday is? This Sunday is the Transgender Dog Parade in Toronto. I'm not making that up, where the male dogs are dressed up like females and the female dogs are dressed up like males and then they have their owners taking them on a parade through downtown Toronto. And if the dogs knew (laughs) what was going on, they would say, it's entirely appropriate that these people pick up my And so, I'm going to take a couple of weeks. I'm kind of sorry, but not sorry, because I think it's important. Uh, The title you can see on the bulletin, Is There a New Testament Response to Tony Campolo's Open Letter Accepting Monogamous Same-Sex Relationships? What, what, What do we say to this? I'm not going to read the text again, Romans 1, 18 to 28. We'll look at that text in detail next Sunday, and it will set the framework for all that I will be saying more directly then. Next Sunday, what I want to look at is, I've had people in this church, good Christian people, well-meaning people, who will come up to me and say something like this. They will say, Is it fair of God to have people who profess faith in Christ go to church, and I, as a heterosexual believer, am free to marry, have children, or even if I'm single, I'm at least free within scriptural boundaries to pursue a romantic relationship. I can have female companionship and and fall in love with a woman, and we can date, and and as long as it's sexually appropriate, I'm still free to to, uh, have that kind of romantic Uh, love in my life. Is it fair of God that uh, a gay Christian is told, well, no, you, you can't pursue that love in your heart? And so that's the question. Is it fair of God for gay celibate Christians to come to Christ, come to church, and be told that for you there cannot be any romantic Uh, expression in your life. That's what I want to look at next Sunday. 
I also want to look at another tricky topic. I want to look at this subject. Why, why our desires and orientations usually don't feel like choices? I want to study that. And then I also want to study uh, Fifty Shades of Gender and the Rights of Our Creator God. Is that okay with you all if we pursue some of these things together? Okay. I felt bad if I thought, have I lost them already? Because that's really early in the game. So help us, Lord Jesus, as we look into your word. Let there never be hatred in our hearts. But please let there be a love for Christ that transcends the desire for cultural acceptance. Please let there be a love for Christ that transcends the desire for cultural acceptance. Help us in all that we do, how we need your spirit. In Jesus' name. And everyone said... The reason I asked Pastor Chris to read that text is it's easy to forget. We're not going to look at that text. We will look at it very carefully in coming weeks. But it is easy to forget or to perhaps just minimize, push it to the fringes of our, of our thinking, how directly and simply God has spoken on a subject. It's easy to forget that unless you honestly keep the plain words of a text alive in your ears. It's very easy to assume that God hasn't made himself clear on an issue just because our culture doesn't accept what he's said. Everybody track with me on that sentence? It's very easy to think that God hasn't made himself clear on a subject just because our culture doesn't accept what he has said. If we want to reject our Creator's word, that's one thing. But let's not pretend he hasn't spoken to the issue. There are issues that have become landmark issues for the Church of Jesus Christ, they will be for our fellowship within a decade or so. These are issues that don't just raise questions. These are issues that change the moral landscape. They actually shift the way Christians view Scripture. They bend the way we interpret biblical standards. In other words, they don't just appear on the scene. They sweep many Christians along under the banner of love and acceptance and tolerance. The two standard-changing issues right now in the church are same-sex intercourse and transgenderism. The issue of same-sex intercourse has been revisited in recent days by Tony Campolo's open letter revealing his reasons for accepting committed monogamous same-sex relationships in the church. It's not that we haven't looked at this. I've already outlined what I believe to be the biblical arguments against that acceptance in the nine-part series, The Bible and Sexual Orientation. That's on the front page of our website, right down at the bottom. Then there was a Sunday night when I responded to Campolo's previous hints of a change in his view. It was a Sunday night. 
And uh, it was a last-minute thing. I can still remember it. About three years ago, and I said in the morning I would talk about it at night. I said, I've seen a video on YouTube from Tony Campolo, and I would talk about it that night. And I just that afternoon put some thoughts together and, and spoke on it that night. I was stunned that if you go to YouTube and type in Tony Campolo, Don Horban, you'll see that that Sunday night little talk that I gave has been viewed 24,000 times. The earlier two arguments that Campolo advanced were these, and you need to stay with me and be alert this morning. It's not a typical... We will, by the way, get through James. We're going to get back to it and go right through it. But the two previous arguments that I dealt with in that YouTube video are these. He said, first, young people aren't going to buy into the church's rejection of homosexuality. That's not a quote, that's just, but that's, that's what he said. Young people aren't going to buy into the church's rejection of homosexuality. I need to say, first of all, that to me that's, that's merely an observation. It's not an argument. And I think it's probably a true observation. Considering the massive rejection of absolute revealed truth and the idea that absolute moral convictions produce nothing but intolerance, we should be amazed if the next generation didn't endorse same-sex relationships. But that's just an argument for social acceptability. It's not an argument for God's approval. I think Campolo knows better than to imagine this is the first time our culture has had a hard time with divine truth. This is not a new factor in terms of New Testament discipleship. Please remember this. Persecution and rejection were the standard expected responses to profession of Christ throughout most of the history of the early church. They are the promised responses. Persecution and rejection are the promised responses to all genuine disciples in the New Testament from Jesus. Christians of the last few centuries, and almost exclusively in North America, are perhaps the only Christians ever to be shocked at the unpopularity of their faith. It was expected in all other eras, and it is still expected in most parts of the globe. Only here are we stunned that people don't like everything that the Bible says. Campolo's second argument, to which I responded, was Jesus, while speaking very boldly about many sinful practices, never said anything about homosexuality. And Campolo went on to admit that Paul certainly did, but Jesus didn't. Paul did, we read his words. But Jesus didn't, and Campolo takes his cue from Jesus. And I said in my response, that's a dangerous game to play. As far as I know, I have all sorts of translations of the Bible, as do you. Jesus never said one word about sexually abusing small boys or having sex with animals. 
But I think it might be a sketchy interpretation to say that he wouldn't be bothered by those things. That argument is just too ridiculous to even pursue much further. In his most recent uh, confession of endorsing monogamous same-sex relationships, Campolo has advanced two additional arguments. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Seeing these are the two arguments he says changed his view, I just think we need to look at his letter. These are, these are absolutely unadulterated quotes from his letter. I haven't modified or changed a thing, not a syllable, not a word. I felt we should look at portions of it to see maybe he has come up with something more compelling to be examined, and we need to have some scriptural responses to it. Campolo writes, quote, you can get this, by the way, if you just Google it or whatever, whatever people do. Quote, it has taken countless hours of prayer, study, conversation, and emotional turmoil to bring me to the place where I am finally ready to call for the full acceptance of Christian gay couples into the church. For me, the most important part of that process was answering a more fundamental question. What is the point of marriage in the first place. For some Christians, in a tradition that traces back to Augustine, the sole purpose of marriage is procreation, which obviously negates the legitimacy of same-sex unions. I just This is me now. I just want to interject here. It is ludicrous to assume that Augustine or anyone else assumed that the only purpose of marriage was having children. It is simply not true. That has never been the position of the church, but it does work for him to say that. Campolo again, quote, Others of us, however, recognize a more spiritual dimension of marriage, which is of supreme importance. We believe that God intends married partners to help actualize in each other the fruits of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, often citing the Apostle Paul's comparison of marriage to Christ's sanctifying relationship with the church. Just just a brief comment there. This is me. Paul does not make a comparison between marriage and Christ's covenant relationship to the church, like you might compare burgers at Harvey's versus A&W. That is not what Paul is doing. Paul's much deeper point is marriage is defined, limited, and explained by Christ's covenant with his bride, the church. That's what he's saying. He's saying we don't, Paul is saying we don't get to define what marriage is. It is a defined biblical concept. And you'll see why that matters in just a minute. Back to Campolo. One reason I am changing my position on this issue is that through Peggy, that's his wife, I have come to know so many gay Christian couples whose relationships work in much the same way as our own. Our friendships with these couples have helped me understand how important it is for the exclusion and disapproval of their unions by the Christian community to end. We in the church should actively support such families, 
Furthermore, we should be doing all we can to reach, comfort, and include all those precious children of God who have been wrongly led to believe that they are mistakes or just not good enough for God simply because they are not straight. That's a very powerful sentence. They've been wrongly led to believe that they are mistakes or just not good enough for God simply because they are not straight. That's a very loaded sentence. I just want to ask a question. Who in this room would actually believe, as Compolo implies, that he or she is good enough for God simply because you're not gay? Like, does anybody hold that view? Who of us thinks he or she is ever morally good enough for God, period? My understanding is not one of us is good enough. Campolo again. As a social scientist, I have concluded that sexual orientation is almost never a choice. Nine weeks, the Bible and sexual orientation. I have concluded that sexual orientation is almost never a choice, and I have seen how damaging it can be to try and cure someone from being gay. As a Christian, my responsibility is not to condemn or reject gay people, but rather to love and embrace them and to endeavor to draw them into the fellowship of the church. When we sing the old invitational hymn, Just As I Am, I want us to mean it. And I want my gay and lesbian brothers and sisters to know it is true for them, too. That's a lot to digest. So for Campolo, the embracing of monogamous same-sex intercourse is based, in his own words, on two factors. That's a lot of reading, but there are two factors, he says. Here's what changed my mind, all right? First, and we'll look at them both. First, the purpose of marriage is the mutual encouragement of holiness and Christ-likeness rather than merely the procreation of offspring. And in this, Campolo refers specifically to the teaching of the Apostle Paul, where Paul refers to marriage being designed by God as the earthly revelation of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. So, so... Reason number one for Campolo. Uh, Same-sex couples, their marriage can, can bring about holiness and devotion to Jesus just like heterosexual couples. And the purpose of marriage, according to Paul, is this sanctifying influence between the two partners. And so... If that works that way for a man and a woman, it can work that way for a man and a man or a woman and a woman. We can produce, we can produce the fruits of the Spirit in both relationships. I want to talk about that for a minute. There's a huge problem here, and it's unaddressed by Campolo. Indeed, he's right. Paul does give wonderfully explicit teaching on the sanctifying 
divine design of Christian marriage, but not all marriages. Why does Campolo not open up the passage to which he gives such glowing reference? He brings it up. We're going to look at this together. Ephesians 5. If you have a Bible in any shape or form, please open up with me. Ephesians 5. I'm going to read 25 to 33. And you can also look up here, because as I read, there's some things I want you to see. So here's where Paul does what Campolo is describing. This is where Paul says, here's how marriage works in the sanctifying of the partners. But notice how it all works. Okay, Ephesians 5.23. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having washed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Just a minute, I'm just going to change slides. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, Let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's a lot of hims and hers and he's and she's. Did you notice? Another question. Why the quotation marks around verse 31? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What is the source of these words quoted by Paul? Ironically, Campolo says these are the words from Paul that became very important to him. Well, we know where Paul got them. He's quoting, he's quoting the creation design of marriage. When Paul puts quotation marks around verse 31. He's telling everybody who can read, I'm talking about Adam and Eve. He's talking about Genesis. That's why it's a quote. That's what Paul's referring to. He's quoting the account recorded in Genesis, and he's talking very specifically about the account of Adam and Eve, the original, the original man-woman marriage. Why, why, why does Campolo not mention Paul's description of this spiritually sanctifying marriage? Why does Campolo not mention that it's a text full of husbands and wives? I tried to show you, you can read it for yourself. The text is packed full of hims and hers, he's and she's. This is the kind of marriage Paul has in mind. There's no denying it. 
This is the kind of marriage Paul says is spiritually sanctifying. It's one designed by a creator. That's why the quotation marks. It's a marriage designed by the creator to, af- to reflect unity, but not sameness. The kind of deep bond reflecting the very nature of our triune God. This is the kind of marriage that has glorious potential to build holiness and Christ-likeness between a male husband and a female wife. If you miss that, you miss everything that Paul is trying to say in that text. One other comment, too, on that point. It's almost too obvious to mention. Campolo's argument is only cogent if we ignore the fact that he must assume what he's trying to prove. In other words, the idea that a same-sex couple can nourish and sanctify each other while sustaining and nourishing a sinful relationship, it only gains traction if you assume God accepts same-sex marriage in the first place, which is what, of course, he needs to prove from the text. It's not a conclusion he can bring to the text. I said there were two factors prompting Campolo's acceptance of monogamous same-sex relations in the church. The first, the first was the purpose of marriage to encourage holiness and Christ-likeness. And I've tried to show why I think Campolo's approach from a same-sex perspective is deeply flawed and won't fit the scriptural text to which he himself refers This isn't me coming saying, no, I got a Bible verse, Tony, that refutes what you're saying. This is me saying, Tony, here's the verses you talked about. You raised them. I didn't raise them. The second factor changing Campolo's mind is a tricky one to deal with. Because a lot of people think you're unloving when you do. And it's not true. The second factor changing Campolo's mind is the kind of friendships he and Peggy had formed with same-sex couples and the spiritual quality of those relationships. Now look carefully at Campolo's words, or at least listen again. He says, In my own life, my wife Peggy has been easily the greatest encourager of my relationship with Jesus. Each of us has been God's gift to the other, And our marriage has been a mutually edifying relationship. Here's the money sentence. One reason I am changing my position. Okay, if you forget everything else, remember those three words. Changing my position. One reason I am changing my position on this issue is that through Peggy, I have come to know so many great Christian couples whose relationships work in much the same way as our own. Our friendships with these couples have helped me understand how important it is for the exclusion and disapproval of their unions by the Christian community to end. We in the church should actively support such families. Note carefully those words. One reason I am changing my position on this issue. Then he goes on to say he has, quotes, come to know great gay Christian couples and has established, quotes, friendship with these couples. Just so there's no twisting of Campolo's words, he 
changed his position to accepting these relationships. All right? And the reason for the change is the quality of relationship he and Peggy have with these couples. We're all agreed, right? That's what he is saying. He changed his view. And the reason he changed his view, I assume from rejection to acceptance. I mean, if he's accepted them all along and now he accepts them, that's not a change of view. That's just same view. So it must mean I used to be opposed to this, but now I accept. I've changed my view. And the reason is these seem to be very godly people. I don't think that's twisting anything in what Campolo is saying. First, we should be thankful for good friendship with these couples. That's as it should be. As Christians, we're called to be gracious people. We're called to be salt and light. We're called to be bearers of Christ's love and Christ's truth. Both conviction and compassion. You can't carry only one of those things. So Christians can never be haters of anyone. Isolation isn't Christ-like. It's not, it's not the relationships here that are troubling with same-sex couples. That's not the problem at all. The problem is the logic that's based on those relationships. Again, Campolo's reasoning seems to be this. He and his wife Peggy found these gay couples to be just like themselves. He found them to be loyal friends. He found them to be people of prayer. He found them to be people of worship. He found them to believe the same creedal truths of the faith. They studied God's word together. They ministered to the poor together. And this, says Campolo, was, was the key factor. He says, the one thing that changed my mind on the issue of same-sex relationships. He just, he just looked at them and they seemed like good Christian people. How do you reject them? All right, let's pray and we'll go home. So my question is this. Should this change anyone's mind on same-sex intercourse? Should the practice of very orthodox Christian faith and life in a host of areas change my mind about what the Scripture seems to say God rejects in one specific area? That's quite a question. Is this how the church should distinguish holiness and unholiness? Is this how the bar of revelation gets set? Hear me. Does everything become right because some things are right? That's the question, isn't it? Does everything become right because some things are right? And again, I can't overstress Campolo's own words regarding the fact that these relationships with same-sex couples, they are what changed his position. So I can only conclude from his own words the fact that he now accepts same-sex relationship and he defines his acceptance as his changed position, it means he must have previously been either opposed to or at least indifferent to same-sex relationships. Otherwise, 
to say changed is meaningless. So by his own testimony, his fellowship with same-sex couples changed his view. He was against, and now he's accepting of monogamous same-sex relationship. And now the work we have to do in the time left is to consider this question. Is this a proper processing of Scripture? Is this Christ-pleasing reasoning for a disciple? Can we justify such a change in a moral conviction about same-sex couples because of favorable insights from other areas of their Christian life? How are we going to answer that question? You sure need something more than my opinion. I mean, we need to see if God's Word speaks to this motive for changing our views on something previously considered sinful. And remember, Campolo, in his own words, he changed his view once he saw the positive characteristics of befriended same-sex couples. Can that motive for changing a view be justified? And I want to answer, no, it can't. And now I want to tell you why I think that's the case. Mark, chapter 10. Mark, chapter 10, 17 to 22. Look it up with me, please, church. Somebody stop that clock. Mark 10, 17. As he was setting out on his journey, that's Jesus, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So he's got this idea, this isn't the topic, but that Jesus is a teacher. And Jesus is saying that... that the kind of things he's attributing to Jesus, you don't get from a teacher. No one is good except God alone. Then Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not, do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack how many things? You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away, he went away. Sorrowful for he had great possessions. I want you to consider what we are beholding in this account. We're looking at Jesus' response to a man who desired to follow him. We're not looking at a rejecter of Jesus. We're looking at someone who wants to follow Jesus. He came to Jesus. Jesus didn't go to him. So there's this sincere hunger in this man. Notice, he ran to Jesus. He honestly desires to be a disciple. 
But that is not the most important detail for our thinking this morning. There's something far more important in the passage. Consider this. We are looking at a man who did almost everything right and did only one thing wrong. That is what we're looking at, isn't it? I said he did only one thing wrong because, amazing as it seems, this is our all-knowing Lord's assessment. Nowhere does Jesus say that this man's self-assessment as a righteous keeper of God's laws, nowhere does Jesus say that's dishonest or it's exaggerated. This is truly an incredibly devout individual running to Jesus. And then the story takes a strange turn. For all the wonderful things this man did perfectly, his one point His one point of rebellion makes him 100% unacceptable as a follower of Jesus. In other words, one point of embraced rebellion, one point of justified rebellion... One point of accepted rebellion doesn't, according to Jesus, leave this man 99% acceptable. One point of justified rebellion makes this man 100% unacceptable as a disciple. Please notice, please notice Jesus, he looked at him and he loved him. That's what made Jesus say, you're not ready. So Jesus' love for this man didn't change the terms of acceptability. Jesus knows love and moral apathy are not the same thing. In fact, Jesus loves this man too much to tolerate non-devotion in any single area of his life. He won't tolerate it. Now, I need to wrap this message up very carefully. I know there will be some who will misunderstand what I'm saying here. So let me, let me try and be as, as blunt as I can be. I am not saying only sinless people can follow Jesus. Did everybody hear that sentence? I am not saying only sinless people can follow Jesus. And even more emphatically... I am not saying Jesus only accepts perfectly righteous people. I'd be in horrible shape if that were true. And several of you would be too. Well, Pastor Don, now I'm confused. You just said about the ruler who came to Jesus that one point of rebellion made him 100% unacceptable, to which I would say, I said no such thing. What I said was one point of justified rebellion makes him 100% unacceptable. Does everybody see the difference? You don't have to be unfailingly righteous in everything you do. But what you can't be is 
unrepentantly sinful in anything you do. And here's why this is so. Contrary to what Campolo thinks, we are not the ones being legalistic here. Righteousness is a matter of heart, not rules. It isn't legalism that makes same-sex relationships sinful. If we were justified by keeping more commands than we break, if same-sex relationships became sanctified because of expressions of devotion in other areas of discipleship, then Campolo's logic would work. But legalism isn't the way. God doesn't pile up your good deeds and take a few bad ones and say, you've kept more than you've broken. Enter into the joy of my Lord. God looks for hearts that long to please Him and follow Him, imperfect hearts to be sure, but hearts that long to please and follow Him in every part of life, not just the ones that fit into my own sexual interests. One area of disobedience isn't sanctified by many other areas of purity and devotion, and that's Campolo's argument. I changed my view, meaning he was against. He, he switched from being against to in favor because, well, they, they pray with us. They evangelize with us. They minister to the poor with us. We break bread together. This, this I changed my view. I used to not accept it. Now I do. Why? Well, because of this. And that's exactly what we're looking at here. One area of disobedience isn't sanctified by many areas of purity and devotion. And now I want to ask the question, is this good news or bad? Does it make discipleship easy or hard? And I want to conclude by saying this kind of single-hearted righteousness is the best news ever. It is the best news ever. I will never in this life be perfect in any area of my heart. And the closer I get to my Lord, the more I feel the weight of each failure. But there will always be grace. There will always be compassion. There will always be restoration. That is, there is always grace and mercy and compassion and restoration as long as I'm not unrepentant or deceived in any area of my heart. There is always pardon and grace and mercy as long as I don't justify unrepentant sin in one area by canceling it out with my righteousness in other areas. Read this out loud with me, would you, church? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David knows that he cannot be trusted to judge his own heart. I can't either, and nor can you.
Many of the sins I commit don't feel like choices at all. I'm going to take a whole week on this. Have you ever blown up in anger at someone in a conversation and you said things you shouldn't say and if someone came right at that moment before you had a chance to calm down, if someone came right at that moment and said, what made you do that? You would say, look what my wife said to me. Look what the bank did. Did you see the way that driver cut me off? That's why I responded the way I did. My point is, that anger that that bubbles out, there are a million explanations. Not one of them feels like a choice. My anger just went... Search me, O God, and know my heart. I will tend to justify all sorts of things in my heart. The whole heart must be searched by God as a whole. The whole heart must be offered to God on His revealed terms. However imperfectly, all portions of the being I call myself must be lived on His terms and not my own, not my own inclinations, not my own desires. And the whole body of Christ must come to see Jesus on those same terms. Please, Tony, don't train precious souls in the name of love to justify sin in one area by piling up acts of righteousness in others. That's the most unloving thing a preacher of the Word can do. Everyone needs God's grace on the same unreserved, complete terms for their whole heart. Everyone. We'll talk more about it next Sunday. Let's pray together.